Okay, Manuel Rosenthal joining me from an undisclosed location somewhere in Colombia, maybe. How's it going? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Here we are. It's going as, as good as possible. Uh, the path to the abyss, but we're here and we're. <laughs> Are we? Uh, it's it's not a question of like the direction we're headed because clearly we're headed for the abyss, but it's more like you know speed. Like, are we going really fast, medium fast, you know, maximum speed? That's the seems to be the question. Yeah, exactly. But uh, we, we, we're actually going to talk at a very uh, high level, right? We're going to talk in a theoretically elevated level about um, the, the, the stage of capitalism that we've reached in Colombia. Like what yeah. is, what is, yeah. Yeah. So let me, uh, let me just start us off, though, with a reflection. I was talking to, um, I was talking to someone yesterday about like the oil sands in, in Alberta. And, uh, you know, the drop in the price of oil. And it just hit me because I've been reading different things. And, and it hit me like, because we were saying, oh, you know, maybe if the price of oil drops low enough, then we'll, uh, you know, they'll they'll stop colonizing the indigenous territories because there's no energy to, to be accessed there. Like, And then I realized, like, Canada's not so much in the oil business and that's why they colonize lands. Canada's in the colonizing lands business and whatever the commodity is can change. Yes. But that colonialism is what has to stay the same, no matter whether it's about my rare earth min minerals or oil or agricultural land or suburban development, whatever it is. The factor that stays the same is, is colonization. Yes. Yes. And you know, here... That example you're giving me actually provides a very good entry door to to what we need to discuss. You know, there's a there's a a, a very one of the best uh, members of parliament in Colombia, which is almost an impossibility. But there's a guy from the left who's a who's a script writer, he's a book writer, a novelist, and so on, Gustavo Bolívar. And he published a piece recently uh, because he, he's promoting the regulation of marijuana, another way to say legalization, but with regulation. And, and he, he mentions data like this. I'll give you an idea. It means it has everything to do with the oil example. He, he said... The U.S., only the U.S. Uh, market for marijuana produces or moves 87,000 million dollars a year. 87 billion, right? A year. Yep. Yep. Now, uh, the, the, the pound of Colombian marijuana, uh, the, the, it's called creep, the type of marijuana that is grown here where I am in Northern Cauca, is sold at $5,000 a pound in average in the U.S. That was 2019. It is bought here, pressed, ready to smoke or whatever you do with it. it here, they buy it from an indigenous person, all set to arrive in the U.S. for 3 to $4 a pound. Got it? Three to four dollars a pound. So there's the market. So this fellow argues that if you leave, if you regulate marijuana, and then in order to produce it, the state has to license you, and in order to sell it, you can only sell it like a liquor store for marijuana, etc. Then drug trafficking would end, and this country would be at peace because they wouldn't kill people anymore. Right, got the connection. Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I was with you for a little bit. <laughs> Gustavo lost me though when, uh, when he said that drug trafficking would end and and there would be peace. There you go. There, there was a bit of a leap there that I didn't uh, follow. It amazing. Like, uh, yeah, I am I against the legalization of marijuana? Absolutely not. Do I think it's stupid? Prohibition is stupid. It is stupid. I mean, it, you don't need much of a 
brain yeah, it's unjustifiable yeah the, whole, the, the war on drugs yeah is obviously a, another mechanism for like who in the right for, can can imagine that these armies and then above them the the patrones the big owners of all these and then corporate interests and then the huge uh, amount of money flowing up north, the value transferred to the north, that all that stuff will disappear. That, uh, the weapons, what will they do with the weapons? I mean, they'll become angels from one day to the next because the government <laughs> said, now you can smoke the stuff. But you have to ask us for permission. And who well, is us? Yeah. Who is the government? Who is the regulator? If not... I came up... Yeah. I... I had that realization around slavery too, because I think it was, uh, there's an Australian writer uh, who studies the history of racism named Patrick Wolf. And he, he was talking about, I think it was Brazil. It could have been Australia, but it was like, you know, the commodities that slaves made, they made tobacco, they produced sugar, they produced um, cotton ultimately. But it was, again, it was like, is, is this like, are these slaves being moved around for the sake of sugar or is the sugar being made uh, as part of the slave business, you know, Mm -hmm. and it makes a lot more sense to real, to think about it as this is a gigantic slave business and the things they produce can change. Exactly. They're secondary. Absolutely. So there we have it. That's the first essential point here. The, the whole idea of, of uh, mafias, to call them somehow, or, yeah. or it, is, it is not about one specific product. They will shift. They'll move elsewhere. So what is it about? What, what are we talking about? We're not, and I agree with you entirely, we're not talking about the specific produce. Everybody knows the story of prohibition in the U.S., did mafias end? Do mafias end when it when the same uh, the same product becomes legal? They don't. So what is it? What are we talking about? And and just to 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 uh, present an idea for discussion, I I hadn't thought about this stuff until about ten years ago, more or less, when we were in a in an international conference on nonviolence and protection of nature at a university here in Quindio. And there, there was a, a priest from Italy, uh, Tonio Delolio, a brilliant man, who worked with Libera. Libera is the, the Italian organization against mafia in Italy. And they've done amazing stuff. But you know what they've done the best of is they have tried to understand what mafia means in every sense, economically, politically, culturally. And then this fellow stands up. So people listening to us can imagine this. He stood up at a filled up auditorium. He's an Italian with an Italian accent. He's speaking Spanish and he says, we have invented for the world, the mafias. (laughs) In other words, we invented the future. Or should I say the present? (laughs) And then he moves on to say, oh, yeah, you think mafias are in Sicilia or in Calabria or in Napoli and they have little to do with you. Absolutely not. It is a culture. It is a way of life. And it is absolutely attached with everything we should detest and that we follow as normal. In other words, accumulation of wealth, uh, authoritarianism, violence extractivism and taking advantage of the other which means patriarchy so the entire thing is here and now imagine that culture becoming the new face of capitalism well you are now imagining the future this is what okay let let me add a couple of bits to our our italian comrade because uh this has made me think of uh there's a book, I think I told you about it a little while ago, Diego Gambetta. It's called Codes of the Underworld, How Criminals Communicate. Yes, you so, do. So, 
<laughs> he talks about, you know, like the things they do to signal like that they're mafia too, for example, or or mafia guys, um, they they make a big show of being incompetent at business. So if they're like sent to shake down a legitimate business, they have to demonstrate that they don't know how to run the business because they have to demonstrate to their boss, like, I'm helpless without you. That's the signal. So there's all these things they do to sort of signal like, I am loyal and I'm so loyal that I'm incompetent and I uh, can't, I couldn't survive without your patronage. So, you know, that's proof that I'm not gunning for your position or, you know, going to betray you. And he kind of makes an analogy to like universities (laughs) where, where, you know, administrators have to show they're incompetent at being scholars or whatever to show that because they're rewarded by loyalty. But but so the structure of loyalty and displays of incompetence and so on, that's also part of it. But th- he also talks about the law. So like the one thing that I, that um, you're, the, the person you're quoting didn't mention, or not one, one of the things that is like in Italy, this guy argues that in Italy, there's actually many more laws uh, on the books than in many other countries. So the more laws there are on the books, the more likely you are to be committing some crime, even just by going about your day, <laughs> right? And uh, and in fact, there's a there's an American lawyer who wrote a book called Three Felonies a Day. So he talks about how the average American commits three felonies a day. And because you're committing three felonies a day, because the laws are so vague, it means that cops at any time they can arrest you for something. There's always something they can find. There's always some. So because you're always, you know, if you're always a criminal and everybody is some kind of criminal, then um, the idea of, you know, like it becomes everybody becomes more vulnerable to. Uh, the systematic, um, wealthy, you know, organized criminals who are in charge of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last point is, you know, the other person that I've been, I've been, I wrote this book about uh, Rwanda and the Congo. Yes. I sent it to you. Um, yes. And there's a chapter on Carla del Ponte. Well, not just Carla del Ponte, but Carla del Ponte was this, you know, she was there. She was famous for prosecuting the uh, mafias of Italy. So she's this courageous woman who prosecuted the mafias in Italy. I don't actually know anything about what she did in Italy, but I know that she was appointed to prosecute the war criminals of Yugoslavia and the war criminals of Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, uh, there were war crimes committed by both sides uh, of this, of these conflicts. And she, she exclusively prosecuted uh, one side, right? She exclusively prosecuted the uh, government that was overthrown in Rwanda. Well, in both cases, she basically prosecuted the governments that lost those wars. Um, and officials from those governments. And there's in, in both, you know, both cases, people asked her, like, why didn't you prosecute Kagame? Why didn't you prosecute the Kosovo Liberation Army or Bosnia or NATO? And she said, well, you know, I wanted to, but they wouldn't cooperate with me. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, so the mafias are empowered by a legal system that ultimately, you know, facilitates their existence, right? Like there's no crime without the law and there's no, um, there's no mafias without a a legal system that's somehow subordinate and corrupt and, and kind of works with them in all these ways. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and this is one of the complexities. I mean, you've opened up something, each one of these, of these topics is huge and deserves a lot of attention and and how much attention is being paid to this i mean in principle the people say that is organized crime so say social scientists politicians political scientists anthropologists do not research this stuff even because that is 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 about it's about crime so maybe anthropologists might do it but it isn't about crime it is, it is about understanding societies, politics, and where we're going. For example, what you just said, the judicial systems uh, and their relationship with organized crime. Isn't that a huge question to begin with? 
like yeah, that's, yeah. who in the right mind today after 500 plus years of experience with capitalism and from Hobbes to now uh, who in the right mind could today clearly state that the judicial liberal system is about justice it isn't it is based in principle about the regulation of a theft the theft of property the creation of private property it was established in principle to deprive uh, to the right of property the majority of people in the world based on race religion etc women gender etc yeah so it's yeah and when when this property regime was established people were property too right so a lot of these laws about like you're allowed to dispose of your property as you see fit those are actually about slaves it's really about like you can do with your slaves as you see fit and then other kinds of property like are also secondary to to all these regulations about what the master is allowed to do with his slaves so so here and this is one thing one area to pursue i i know it's impossible to address it here and now but it deserves to be to to be followed exactly around carla del ponte we have i don't know how many carla del pontes here but i will tell you uh, the imagine the relationship only around justice and the law between organized legal crime and organized illegal crime because they're both organized crime like uh, I, I mean there isn't a single extractive right. uh, project in this country that doesn't involve corruption it's impossible and that doesn't involve death, death threats no piece of legislation is passed in this country none not one without the 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 uh, crime the mob the criminal hand in there the corporations paying behind like I mean the entire legal system of this country and i know the us canada every depends on it i mean just remember snc lavalin uh, and the whole scandal mm -hmm. in Canada recently, and so on. So, so you you have two systems, two justice systems working hand in hand, and they feed each other. The one that is legal and the one that's illegal. Both have norms, structures that have to be followed and obeyed, and they run parallel to one another. And so, how do you talk about the legal system? So, let me put you put an image to you. In 2018, sorry, in 2008, that's 12 years ago, Northern Cauca in Colombia, a region you know well, uh, was uh, you saw it. You you were here. Most of the indigenous-run territories recovered land from landowners, had food plantations, that, and it's collective territory, and the produce went to the, the people, including trout, protein, everything, and it was sold in order to, uh, first distributed and then sold in order to create surplus value for the communities themselves without exploiting them. That was the case. Now, from 2008 until now, that this very same territory where the indigenous resistance was born is completely covered in marijuana plantations. In fact, when you drive on the Pan American Highway from the airport into the second city of Colombia, Cali, and you look at the central mountain chain, you see it lit as though it was neighborhoods. And all this stuff is marijuana plantations that are lit throughout the night. So if you see it, and I see it, and any passenger coming in and out can see it, the army sees it. The Colombian government sees this, and it was illegal, and there was a war on these drugs. Yet this thing grew to occupy the entire territory. Not only did it occupy the territory, now you have... NASA people killing NASA people, arming for the drug traffickers and some uh, defending the territories against the, the drug traffickers. The army 
There's more army in these territories than there is in any other place in Colombia. And yet this thing is moving. Violence is growing. So what you have in place here is an image of how this mafiosi type of uh, capitalism works. You, you, you appear to be against something in order to promote that and to establish it, then a huge amount of money flows into this territory. Most of the accumulation and the gain goes up north. And then it is presented in the cities and in the media and so on with a lie saying this is an exception and it, we are fighting a war on drugs. When in fact what is happening is you're capturing territories, you're capturing recruiting people and you're establishing the very wars of conquest from the past around the profit uh, of, from one crop. So, I mean, that image gives you an idea of one of the... This is the place, this area here, is the place where the best of that marijuana that fills the $87 billion market in the U.S. comes from. So, I mean, right. shouldn't we be understanding this kind of stuff? Like, if so, I speak like I'm doing now here in Colombia, I will be threatened and maybe murdered by government forces, armed actors, revolutionary forces, community leaders, and people from the base. What not that the mob structure? How did they do that? Because if you have an indigenous community that's so organized, like when I was there in 2004, they had uh, as assemblies, they were deciding things collectively. They had an, a Guardia Indígena that was, you know, kind of like really enforcing the kind of the will of the of the people expressed in these assemblies with hundreds and thousands of people. They They had a form of discussion. They had like indigenous... Um, you know, their own kind of NASA ways of making these decisions, judging uh, whether a crime had been committed or, or even arresting people by the Guardia Indigena. They had um, they had a whole they had this they had a real system and an organization in place. How did how did how did they get back in? Like, how did the system get back in uh, under that like in those conditions? Excellent. Excellent. That is actually the the question. We we are uh, piecing the parts together, but we know we know a lot more. And because we were actually the first ones to be targeted by by this new order coming in, so so we we by, by we I mean the communication network that that existed in that we had created and were part of a team of indigenous peoples whose principle and whose effort was, as you know, to to uh, ex allow people to express their views, their perceptions, and to help people consolidate precisely what you described, their autonomy, and, and to make uh, collective decisions, and to not allow a few to decide for the many, and to understand what the, the project from capital was in terms of invading these territories and and how they saw this as a threat and they wanted to destroy it, and then how people could organize from within territories and, and resist this stuff and develop an alternative. So that's exactly, in summary, it was a, a counterinsurgency strategy through this mechanism. And how did they do it? Well, uh, exactly from where you started. If decisions are made collectively in assemblies, that's what you have to target to, to destroy. And that's where they started. If the, the authority was in the collective and the decision-making was collective. So no, no elected authority can decide on his or her own. They had to ask the collective. Well, that began to change uh, in 2008. They would bring a project and present it as all the positive sides of the project, no discussion about the negative side, or else we will lose the money. And it happened through a very smart and horrendous strategy. One of the most well-known indigenous leaders here with an impeccable trajectory was captured by the government during one of Uribe's presidencies. 
and he was captured and accused of being part of financing the paramilitaries with indigenous uh, made uh, with indigenous resources which was a lie but when this fellow left jail uh, suddenly he was let go uh, then things began to change and he began to to become the leader of a reform restructuring process in the community which was based on recovering ancestral spiritual uh, principles and so there was a very good discourse on principles but in practice what they were doing was engaging with government funds engaging in the peace negotiations that the government began with the FARC in order to obtain money uh, in, uh, as a result of these negotiations and then transforming the territory from a, a loose pin that the government couldn't control into, in exchange for money and threats, into a part of the Colombian government. So uh, the Colombian government and other actors, mafias, armed actors, etc., would speak with certain leaders, a very small group, and define a roadmap. And so this number of things had to be approved in assemblies. So the assemblies began to approve whatever the leaders said. That was the beginning of this whole thing. Then, now we know, they began to get rid of people who would challenge this kind of stuff. You obey the leaders if you respect the process. So that began to be dismantled. And then, little by little, leaders as well as community members began to engage in, say, monocultures of different types in order to gain access to markets where they would sell the stuff to buy the food they used to produce. So they don't produce the food anymore. They, they have transformed the territory into merchandise, into money to buy from corporate interests. And, and from there, and the natural process led to the produce that sells the most, which is the, the plantations that are then used for illicit drug use. And that marijuana came into the territory, and then the whole territory is transformed into a war again, and all armed factions are here all over the place. So it is that's a conquest, a, a, a process where this whole thing was taken over. So how, how do I know, just in, to give an image, how do we know this stuff? We know it because... We saw it coming and we knew who was who. And we were the first ones targeted. They had to silence the communication network because they had to silence the critical aspect, the consciousness, the ancestral perception, and the collective decision-making. So those were the enemies. And those are the enemies of mobs, mafias, and this stage of capitalism everywhere in the world. You have propaganda that lies, the discourse hasn't changed. But in fact, on behalf of the same principles, what you have now is an engagement with the market, legal or illegal, that doesn't matter, and the territories have been taken over and the communities are divided, killing each other. I don't know if that gives you an idea. It does, and I wanted, I wanted to. I know we've both been to also Chiapas in in Mexico, and um, talk to people from the Zapatistas, and I know that they uh, are very um, draconian about people who grow marijuana in those territories and other uh, other such crops. Um, you know what's your you i think you've been there much more recently than me but like is that is that what you know was that what was missing too like the ability to say from a from an authoritative position as the you know the legitimate indigenous authority like we don't do that here yeah, yeah we, but but yes it's wonderful that you put the maya example and i'll i'll tell you where it's at it, it, it's called in for the Celtal people who are yes. Mayas, they call it Ich El Tamuk. Ich El Tamuk is is the, the let's call it energy, although that's not the perfect term, but it's 
whatever it is that that runs through every living being, including the universe itself, and pushes it to take different shapes, move in different directions, relate to each other. So it's the designer of life. And it's what inhabits us, every being. Like you try to kill a, an ant or, or any, and we will all fight for our lives, right? And we will, we will grow and change and design each other because that's what we, that's the Ich El Tamuk. Now, here's what happened. And here's, I believe, I'm convinced the essence of a problem. Uh, I'll quote here Emmanuel Levinas, whom I just remember. Emmanuel Levinas, the, the uh, philosopher, he wrote a magnificent short piece. I think it was a conference on the socialization of money or the society of money. And what he actually says is that eagerness to live, that energy to live that inhabits us human beings, uh, money distorts it because it, it, we have this feeling of omnipotence. We can become anything we want with money. We can acquire anything we want and, we, and anything can become merchandise that can be acquired. So that addictive kind of, of power that money has manages to buy the Ich El Tamuk. So the entire force of life in humanity, because it, it doesn't happen in other species, can be bought or sold. So what we want, what we're looking for, uh, becomes a practical uh, acquisition. It's accumulation. And it's greed. And the lack of it is impotence. It's loneliness. It's losing. Winning or losing. Now, a territory like an indigenous territory like this one or Chiapas, the southern Chiapas, the Mayan territory, if the Cheltamuk is alive and cannot be sold or bought, then the communities will resist the aggression of these kinds of mafias. Whether it's legal or illegal extractivism, transforming the territory into mer merchandise. So here, this sounds theoretical. It isn't. I'm going to give you an image. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, a community here uh, uh, stopped uh, uh, one of these big, big loads of marijuana, uh, tons of it coming out of the uh, territory, burnt it, and then captured five guys armed with weapons, grenades, etc., judged them in a collective assembly, as it's done here before, always, and destroyed the weapons immediately. And so the reaction from the group that claims to, to be behind all this stuff was that marijuana is ours. That's the problem. See, if the marijuana is theirs, then so is the land, and so are the people who live in that land. So they, they, they feel right owners of this. That was exactly the conquest, or that's exactly Rwanda, and that's capitalism, and that's the mafia state. They own because it can be owned. What has not happened in Chiapas is that the Ich El Tamuk cannot be sold, cannot be bought. In fact, because it can be sold and bought and because it has become merchandise and we have become merchandise, then that is why we are running into suicide by global warming, wars all over the place. That's what this system is all about. That's the mentality of capitalism, which is a mafia mentality. Anything and everything can be bought or sold and whoever owns and has the force has to be obeyed. So some have to be, behave like fools and that they can't do it. Others like able and can do it, etc. And the power structure develops. That's exactly what infiltrated so this territory. I have People a, were in I have a hypothesis too. So mm -hmm. tell me what you think of this because it sounds to me like part of the problem or part of the difference between Chiapas and Northern Cauca is... In Chiapas, they are their administration is, I think, even still, uh, in theory, 
in rebellion against the government. So their local administrations, the caracoles or whatever they're called now, are not recognized as the municipal authorities by the central or state government. Whereas in Cauca, these uh, mayors, the alcaldes, were part of the state structure at the same time as being, uh, in theory, accountable according to indigenous law to the community. So is there something to the yes. fact that they were legitimate in Northern Cauca and illegitimate in Chiapas that actually enabled the Zapatistas in Mexico to protect their process better? It, it, it's not exactly that, but it is, but it's in there. It's in there. I mean, it's something for all of us to think about, but, but it's this, it's, if you understand, if we understand that the state, not just the government, the state is a patriarchal structure, the most patriarchal of all structures. It isn't just the state institutions or the state funding. It includes it, but it is, it is a way of administering collective goods, territories, etc., through a patriarchal figure, the father that provides to everyone, that regulates everything, if that structure is accepted as necessary and practical, then you fall into the trap sooner or later. You do. And that, yes, is the weakness and was the weakness of this process here. For example, when free trade, I mean, I'm, I'm going to put an example where you were directly involved with us everywhere, the free trade Between agreements. Canada. When free trade agreements, the, the NAFTA and all this stuff were, were being dis Columbia uh, free trade discussed, agreement, for example, too, right? 2010. Exactly. The Canada-Colombia free trade and then NAFTA before the North America free trade agreement and then the Quebec uh, uh, meeting of ministers, yep. remember, where all people were out in the yeah, street yeah, yeah. against this stuff. What was the, the, the positions there where some people were not against the states but they disagreed that the state would be taken over by transnational corporations, which was a limited view of, I mean, the states and transnational corporations, they can't take over the state because it's the same thing. I mean, the state involves transnational corporations. How much decision-making is taking place in one or the other is an internal dispute. But the state and transnational corporations cannot be separated. That is the state. Now, eh, when we were fighting against this stuff, there were people that were fighting against the the uh, for autonomy for the territories and the peoples to make decisions on their own and to live life in their own ways. In other ways, in other words, against the mercantilization of everything transforming people and territories into merchandise. Others agreed that merchandise is here to stay and the world is ruled by this kind of system. So what you had to do was arrive into a fair trade agreement. And this one was unfair. That's a trap. It's exactly what happened here and what has not happened in Chiapas. So you're right. The, the problem is that if you think it is practical to uh, obtain resources from the government under legal conditions, they will trap you right. sooner or later because what you will deliver to into the state is the very principle of autonomy. So the struggle against the state, a world without states, is not an impossibility. What is impossible is a world with states. It will lead to catastrophe, and it can only be run the, by mafias. Um, that there, there's a connection to the a lot of indigenous scholars from here uh, in Canada. Uh, Glenn Coltard, for example, he talks a lot about the like re refusing the politics of recognition. So it's like there's the state, the Canadian state will put one of the indigenous nations in this position of if you do this 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 and this then you'll achieve recognition and then those goalposts are always changing 
And so uh, they're having to fill out these forms yep. and do these applications and, and all to get recognition uh, while the government, while the state is continuously stealing their land and driving them off their territory and polluting their land and destroying it. And they're fighting for this thing called yes. recognition, which even when you get it, it's not clear what it got, what it did for you, right? Um in fact, it, what we've talked about in the past, it, it, the the uh, the power of the, of this entire mentality upon which this system is established—capitalism, patriarchy, racism, etc.—the the the whole thing is based on a mentality, and that that mentality, which we have come to accept as normal, as as necessary, is based on the fact that. Most of what exists and most of what people have experienced throughout history is thrown into oblivion. What history, the official history tells, is a very small component of the human experience or even the world's experience uh, that has been selected to be acceptable. And then the power to select a part of history that is acceptable and recognizable is the power of the winners, of the powerful. And so that is exactly what, in your example, the states do, recognize. What do you recognize? What can be brought out of the oblivion? And what can be brought out of the oblivion has to follow certain conditions. And the conditions change yeah, all the time. Oh, and Palestine so is another great the, example, right? It's like this if if pal if the Palestinians can do perfect. all these all these things, like make all these, you know, refuse to ever use violence, uh, you know, against Israel when Israel commits genocide against them, you know, denounce at, at whatever organization Israel wants them to denounce, then maybe they'll be recognized, right? And it's like, so, yeah. Look at the parallel between that. It is the perfect thing. It's all over the world. Palestine and in the Middle East, the Kurdish struggle, Rojava. While Palestine, we know once and again, is divided precisely on what made the difference between the NASA people in Northern Cauca and the Zapatistas in Chiapas, there are, there are Palestinians who struggle for their liberation within the two-state solution or within the one-state solution, Israel. And there are other, in exchange for money or whatever it is, to be recognized. And there are other, this stuff that we know. In the meantime, there is PKK and Rojava and the women's revolution, and they do not accept and cannot live with the state. So they don't want recognition. They, they despise recognition. So they will have a tactical relationship even with the U.S., Say, help us with your bombs to stop uh, the sure, is sure. Islamic army, etc. Et help us with your bombs, but I, we know sooner or later you'll turn your bombs against us, but we'll win. But they know that what they are looking for cannot be under a nation state or under the global mafia that is needs right now because it's in crisis to concentrate the few territories and resources left in the planet to put them under their control for the accumulation of money in few hands and that's what's happening everywhere we don't have a neoliberal world that was the past not because it's gone but because something worse is establishing itself openly and it is a global mob uh, where, uh, and, and, not, and not in openly, the not in the democratic sense of a mob with pitchforks in the streets, which might actually, which would definitely be an improvement, <laughs> mob rule in that sense. But like the mob in the sense of the mafia, yeah. Right, right, right. I'm using the term in the yeah. colloquial way that is used used in, in Canada. And by the way, I mean people in Canada think about tend to think that this happens elsewhere. Uh, not in Canada, but I mean, if you want to understand the the Italian mafias, 
don't go to Italy. You have to go to yeah, Montreal yeah, yeah. and Toronto. Mm. And that's where they are. But, it's, but it isn't just the Italians and the mafia. It's yeah. a way of organizing and structuring the accumulation of wealth, recruiting people to do it with you. I mean, and what, what happened in Rwanda is a perfect example of this. And then you have people like Carla Del Ponte and others saying, So do they there create, a, do they create yeah. a Carla Del Ponte kind of character in Colombia who is fearlessly confronting the, the mob and, uh, and just frustrate, perpetually frustrated? Is there like a, a character in the Colombian media that's kind of got that role right now? Well, you you know, they, what's happened here is more tragic than that. There's been one after the other, but within the state, like uh, uh, Luis Carlos Galán Sarmiento was a presidential candidate and mm -hmm. he was murdered as part of an inter internal fight for it. But he was against drug trafficking. But most of the connections we've discussed here between drug trafficking and the state itself, he couldn't, he didn't recognize, yet they killed him. Uh, before him, they killed Lara Bonilla, who was a minister of justice. So, so here it's even there are people who constantly attack the mobs, but not the mafia mentality. And I gave you the example when we started, Gustavo Bolivar. Like, uh, if if the regulation comes out and it becomes law. Of course, you know immediately that law, there will be no regulation and they'll find a way to, or another product or the same product to go around the law. But you have a guy like Gustavo Bolivar that is convincing people the state can be good. The problem is not the produce. And then this will become a smoke screen that will cover up what you described about what Glenn Coulter mm -hmm. talks about the entire regulatory mechanism that keeps us within the mafia will be rendered invisible once again. So then you will have Zapatistas that will negotiate with the government. And that's the, pro the, the promise and the future. Whereas you cannot have Zapatistas negotiating with the government. You have one or the other. You can't have a free Palestine recognized by the US and Israel. Yeah. You can't. Can't happen. And Israel cannot exist, yeah. by the way, if it continues to abide by a state, the state of Israel, that has power of over Israel to recognize or not and to guide or not. Even Israelis will never be free if they don't free themselves from that mentality that serves the power of oppression. So, okay, uh, mafiosidad, right? But then where does fascism fit in? Because there's also a whole fascism thing going on all over. Uh, I just translated our friend, our mutual friend, Hector Mondragon, had this article talking about whether, you know, the rise mm -hmm. of the ultra-right today has parallel, you know, is similar to 90 years ago and con he concludes that it is so and he actually talks about like mm -hmm. the relationship between Mussolini and the mafia because he says even though Mussolini was not ultimately good for the mafia uh, <laughs> uh, physically uh, they still uh, today's mafias really like him they look back fondly you yeah. That that piece by Hector Mondragon is fantastic. It's uh, Fascismo del Siglo XXI, uh, 21st century fascism, fascism. And he puts a question mark and then answers, Senores. yes. I translated it and, as, and, uh, I'm afraid so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm afraid so. And, and the, you... There's, there's something... One has to swallow parts of Mussolini and read yeah. some of his stuff. And you know what his term for this mafia structure of government and power was? No. Corporativity. Corporativity. Okay. Corporativity. That's where it comes from. It comes from Mussolini. Corporate, corporate, corporate. We yeah. keep saying that. The, the, not that the word didn't exist, but the concept as we use it now corporation and the chains of production 
etc. That came from Mussolini. It's the essence of fascism. The, and so the essence of fascism is, is that you, you will not tolerate anything outside of. That's one principle it's in just, fascism. Hector makes it a big deal out of the a, fact that it's actively mobilizing a part of society against the others. So, as a, right, right, uh, it, but that that is a, a tactic, that is a mechanism. It's like saying it's rash, uh, racialization. Right. Like you, it's not. It, it's not only that black people are shown as being inferior or shown as. It, it's it's not the the uh, discrimination. No, it's acting on the discrimination. It's transforming right. it into like action value. because they be, they are against us. And so, and that's the two, two things are essential to fascism as far as I understand. And that's why it's alive today. One is, is that it, it's always there, but it's part of the system, but there are times and moments when, People who gain power within the system and the system itself moves towards totalitarianism. It, it cannot tolerate anything outside of it because its very existence would be threatened. So in a, in a world where you have excess population because they don't need most of us now, and you have excess capital because most uh, the biggest corporations have swallowed and need to swallow the, the smaller ones, and the smaller ones are huge already, so you have to concentrate, and then you're running out of space because the entire planet is being occupied, then capitalism is in a situation that if it is to continue to accumulate wealth in fewer and fewer and fewer hands, it has to eliminate excess population, eliminate excess capital, and it has to capture scarce resources and territories. And so there's where the need for totalitarianism comes from. And then it makes sense that migrants are the problem, the blacks well, are the... Hector also points out that it's like liber it's often liberals that uh, defeat the socialists, right? They, they're the ones who defeat the, the left. But then the fascists come and and erase all the things that were gained. So it's more like that strategy for, um, yeah, I guess it's like conquering or defeating or rolling back a lot of those um, things that were gained, whether it's union rights or democratic rights or control. Yeah, But that's exactly what you just said. You said before they create an enemy that that joins people together so they do i mean the spectrum is created by the totalitarian power so they say the, they have to establish who the enemy is it's the enemy that's convenient to them that will bring all the frustration of society and all the fears of society into uh, their their control and then throw them against that enemy. So what happens, for example, in, in a country like Colombia in, in, in 2008, 2010, etc., in those years, people here were beginning to fight for autonomy, the recovery of territories, our own way of life. And that was transformed through the war on drugs, the war on terror, and all the other strategies we know about. It postponed our own agenda from below, and the agenda from above was created for us, which is what fascism. So how do you how do you understand the relationship between, or how do we how do we understand the relationship between the mafia mafia governance? like the order created by a, a, a system of, of hierarchy that uses law and is in and out of law and suborns law where, where it's significant or where it's uh, convenient and, uh, and fascism. What's the, what's the connection? I mean, yeah, I, the connection between those two things. One is 
when if you hear for example the people in power in Colombia here Uribe members of parliament mostly women the two women that speak this way there is a growing hatred for the poor hatred it's hatred for the black for the indians for and there are decent people that are being threatened So it's this image of being decent, yeah. being pure, and it's a moralistic yeah. image. And, and that gathers people together for order. Those very people who speak like that, these very people, like the Colombian vice president, Marta Lucia Ramirez, brought up in the, in the elite of this country under all protections. I mean, you can't find anyone who's more elitist than this. Three weeks ago, Justin, three weeks ago, it was discovered that her and her husband had as partner a guy called Meme Fantasma, Phantom. Guillermo, William the Phantom. William the Phantom was, didn't even finish high school. He grew up in Medellin. He was part of Pablo Escobar's mafia and the Oficina de Envigado, which is Uh, these are hitmen and, and traffickers. And this guy was a paramilitary commander and a murderer in collusion with the Colombian government. And no doubt, under the control and, and uh, governance of Alvaro Uribe Vélez, this guy was a paramilitary commander in the highest level of paramilitary commanders. A fake peace agreement was reached between these people and the Uribe government in order to launder huge amounts of money. So this guy disappears. Nobody knows his name, where he lives, nothing. Until recently when it was discovered that this guy is the partner, legal partner of the Colombian vice president for years in real estate business in Colombia. The guy lives in Madrid and is a powerful guy. So Marta Lucia Ramirez, in every regard, is a fascist. And she speaks from that position of purity. She's a Catholic. She goes to church. She's properly married. And the, the, the black people, the others, are destroying everything. And the poor are good when they're obedient. Like, you have the fascist framework and the totalitarian framework. And then she is gathering money uh, through killing, assassination, destruction, uh, through the drug trade and the mafia thing. So they're not only not incompatible, it's that what, is, that what Colombia has become. There's a guy, a Colombian guy who lives in Vancouver now. He's called the Attorney General Hacker, El Hacker de la Fiscalía. <laughs> And, awesome and the guy was the first guy to... Right? He's perfect. That's how he presents himself. This guy had to leave Colombia because he was the first one to investigate Alvaro Uribe Vélez's connections to mm. drug trafficking and the elites and all this stuff. Now, this guy came uh, two weeks ago, a video where he presents the evidence of the fact that Uribe and his first cousin, a guy that nobody suspected about, who's a very well-known and respected man in Colombia, these two guys, he says it, own every... There isn't a gram of cocaine <laughs> that leaves Colombia that they don't control. Mm. So there you go. Uribe is fighting. Uribe is the owner of paramilitary forces, the owner of drug trafficking, and he is the commander of the fascist state against anyone who be, doesn't belong to the elite. The two things go together in Mexico, in Colombia, and everywhere else. This is the real deep state, and it's a mentality, and it has a very, very strong global structure that is consolidating itself. Like in the past, in Colombia or in Mexico, for example, we could know, and you were here, you could know. The, these are the paramilitaries. They're in collusion with the Colombian armed forces, but you know that's yeah. one side. And there's another side, the, the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the ELN, and so on. Uh, no, there's an absolute liquidity to all this today. You can, yeah. you can be a paramilitary in the morning. At noon, you'll be ELN in the evening. Now, when you say that, you say, oh, it's the, the, those are armed actors. 
No, it's mm-hmm. us. We we look into whatever's convenient to us and we follow whoever the boss mm-hmm. is. So in the morning, we can be a, a, a socialist professor at the university challenging the state in class where it's safe. At noon, we'll go to the meeting and we know we can't speak like that there, so we'll change our our uh, discourse and our actions. And in the evening, we'll run to the complete opposite and at home with friends, we'll be racists and discriminate yeah. and so on. That, that used to happen in certain areas of society. Now, my question is, because we see it here, is it spreading? Is it becoming? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Domenico Losurdo, uh, liberalism, a counter history. He talks about how, you know, mm-hmm. liberalism, like all of these liberals uh, throughout, um, you know, the rise of liberalism, right? For the past two, three hundred years, whatever, Anglo-American liberalism. Most of the time, the liberals who had these wonderful ideas about freedom, they were talking about their freedom. And among the freedoms they, you know, they wanted guaranteed was the freedom to hold slaves and kill their slaves and rape their slaves and uh, sell them and buy them. So the the whole idea of like being a free human being in a liberal order has always been also about, you know, excluding and um, exploiting and, you know, disposing of, of yeah. other human beings. So, yeah, but see, that's in a liberal order. So that's the question. What is changing? What has changed? I may be completely wrong, but in my perception, and this is this is what I think we should look into, and it's urgent. My perception is that that in a liberal order, this is one of the options. This, you use people, but you're yeah, a decent, you're decent guy. You say good things, it's and a, you have good. You know, you run a podcast, and you talk about the importance of voting for the lesser evil or whatever it is, yeah. See, what I see now is that there's a qualitative and quantitative change now. We are we are moving away from a liberal liberal democracy and liberal states. We're moving away completely. It's not here and there. What is happening, and not just at the higher levels of power, it, it, we're moving everywhere into direct violence, recruitment of of people based on their feelings and their frustrations and their anger, fear, the manipulation of fear of losing. And here's one, the the sophistication of the control, uh, the biopolitics of big data, etc., where people can be manipulated and controlled now much more than ever before. Now, if one can put all these pieces together gradually, then it feels very much like it must have felt the days before Hitler established its own Nazi state or or Mussolini its fascist state. There is no alternative. you You have to follow the strongest, the most powerful, the biggest assassin, and you have to obey orders, and you have to look after yourself. Fuck the other one. Sorry for the for the word, but this is this is what is happening more and more. I, I mean, when you read what happened in 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 Rwanda, uh, then then you see examples of these kinds of stuff. I mean, how far are we willing to go? We personally, not the other one. We going how much are we being forced to and how much are we willing to do and i'll tell you how it feels in colombia and how it feels in mexico because i know those two for a fact you cannot trust anybody because people have learned how to lie in order to accommodate themselves on the side of the winner and the winner winner has weapons and murders uh, the perfect image is this: We have what is what are called the dissidents mm-hmm. of FARC, and if you read a, a website called Inside Crime, you will discover with data how these former FARC members 
for the most part, are now totally engaged in the global mafia drug trafficking Mm. structure. But the discourse is revolutionary. And sometimes they don't even bother with a revolutionary discourse. They just want people to follow them or else they kill you. And that came into these territories with the marijuana as well. So they have internal fights for control of territories, but the, the, the entire country is theirs and we are being actively recruited for this kind of stuff. It happens in different ways in Canada, in the U.S., but this is what I say is evolving. And if we don't see it and we don't resist it, which is at the same time resisting capitalism and patriarchy, we, we are being driven into this kind of stuff. Fascism, totalitarianism, and mafias. Uh, I hope people don't believe me and try to prove <laughs> me wrong, because if we will engage in this discussion, but it is happening, and the greatest fear I have is that we're not seeing it, we're denying it.